On this episode of Twill, we have a new version of the core graphics stack project Mesa. A very small yet Phoenix-like distro is rising from the ashes of deprecation. Kubuntu has released their plans for Kubuntu 2404 LTS and the roadmap for implementing KDE Plasma 6. Elementary has released a preview of the next edition of their OS. All of this and so much more on this episode of This Week in Linux, your source for Linux good news. This episode of Twill is sponsored by Collide. More on them later. The Mesa team has released the latest version of this core graphics stack project with Mesa 24.0. It features updates to the open source OpenGL, Vulkan, OpenCL, and video acceleration drivers. At the key highlights of this release of Mesa 24.0 is Imagination Power VR Vulkan driver upstreamed targeting rogue architecture, Radeon Vulkan RAD, RAD V or RAD 5 uh, driver improvements, including faster ray tracing performance and new extension support. Intel ANV Vulkan driver enhancements have been made with support for various new Vulkan extensions. NVK Vulkan driver added last year is now maturing with better performance and additional extensions and inclusion of Rust written in a K compiler for NVK, as well as progress on the Asahi AGX Gallium 3D driver for advanced GL extensions, including OpenGL 3.3. And there's just a ton more, including performance optimizations. The timing of this release is also really good news because it means that it's probably going to be able to make it in the next LTS of Ubuntu for Ubuntu 24.04 LTS. If you'd like to learn more about this latest release of the Mesa drivers, you'll find links in the show notes. Let's talk about DSL. No, not the technology for connecting to the internet, which is very slow. Rather than we're talking about the DSL Linux distribution that was created for the purpose of being extremely small. Now, I'm calling it DSL, and I will continue to do so for the rest of the topic, except for this one point now. So a quick warning for those who have kids around. The name is a bit aggressive, and it stands for Damn Small Linux. So, from this point forward, I will refer to it as DSL. So DSL is a very lightweight distribution. It previously used to be an extremely lightweight distribution. It now has changed its goal and what it's trying to be. So it's now based on Antix 23, and it has a lot of modern computing accommodations because of that. If you compare it to other distributions, I wouldn't really call it modern, but compared to what it used to be, it is a massive change to that. Uh, also, this has Linux kernel 5.10. It's based on Antics, which means it's based on Debian. It offers Fluxbox and JWM window managers. It has apt fully enabled for easy package installations. And this change for the core to what it is now is a whole goal concept change. So instead of being the 50 megabyte system it was meant to be originally, it is now a 700 megabyte limit. And this is so it can be still used on uh, old computers, but also have a usable desktop experience versus these days, 50 megabytes really doesn't get you that far. So understandable, they changed it. Now, this also is because there was a difficulty in maintaining the compact size due to driver requirements and application demand and all that sort of stuff. But they are still trying to find low storage footprint applications and that sort of thing. So speaking of that, the application suite includes ZZZFM, never heard of that, MT Paint for the graphics uh, editing, for the, by the way, the FM is for file manager, Bad Wolf for the web browser, and TMUX for the terminal multiplexer. 
If you want to try this out, you can check out the ISOs that are currently in the alpha stage. Now, they are working on having a stable version, but if you want to go ahead and try it now, you can do so with the alpha downloads. Now, this is very big news, and it might not seem that, especially considering it's a, it's a small distribution, but this is big news because for long-term Linux users like myself, DSL has been around for a very long time, but also it hasn't been updated since 2008. And this is a major departure from what it used to be. So it's really interesting to see what they're doing with this and how and what they're going to be doing going forward. So I will definitely be checking that out and letting you know in the future with any changes that happen to the DSL project. Now, for those who are looking for something that tries to accomplish the old goal of being so small, you wonder why it even exists. Well, you should check out TinyCore. <laughs> And if you'd like to learn more about DSL, you'll find links in the show notes. Kubuntu has released an announcement this week in regards to the plans for KDE Plasma 6 and Kubuntu. So the announcement relates to Kubuntu 24.04 LTS. Now, Canonical is launching Ubuntu 24.04 LTS in April, and of course, the Kubuntu flavor will be joining them on that release. Now, changes into Kubuntu 24.04 do include some big changes like the default switching of the installer to the Calamari's installer. And this is going to give advantages like adaptability for user experience enhancement, advanced partitioning, and faster installation. But the biggest question on everyone's mind is the desktop environment choice for Kubuntu 24.04. And that will be KDE Plasma 5. They've decided to stick with Plasma 5, specifically KDE Plasma 5.27 LTS series. And well, it's not officially announced, there is a possibility that they will do backports PPA with Plasma 6 in the future. They are currently planning for the support for Plasma 6 to come in 24.10, which does make sense because their reasoning for this is based on the stability and focus of KDE Plasma 5 because it is technically end of life, but they are prioritizing stability over new features, especially because it's an LTS release. For those that don't know, that means that they're going to have to maintain this for uh, long-term support reasons for at least three years. And this is an issue because if they were to include Plasma 6 at a stage where it's not really ready yet, it could cause some big issues on the LTS side because people are expecting it to be reliable when you release an LTS. So it makes sense they would choose to do Plasma 5 instead. They've also hired a new developer for the team with Scarlett Gately Moore. This is an experienced KDE developer hired to ensure bug-free Plasma desktop experience. Also has been contracted for three months to work on various projects such as the release for 2404, a Calamari's installer update, and preparing Plasma 6 for targeting Kubuntu 24.10. So, like I said, the future of Kubuntu is bright, but not with Plasma 6. Well, that's not true. The Current, the near future is not with Plasma 6, but Kubuntu 24.10 will definitely have, or at least it is currently planned to have KDE Plasma 6. And it is also quite possible that the backports PPA could bring Plasma 6 later on to 2404 because they have made massive updates to the 20.04 release. So it, it is definitely possible. If you'd like to learn more about this news, you can check out the links in the show notes. For those looking for a distribution of Linux that exudes style and polish, then Elementary OS will be something that you'll want to check out. Though, probably want to check out the current version of the distro rather than the one that is coming up right now on the show because Daniel Foray announced that the Elementary OS early access mode is now available. So 
Why is this important? Well, early access is a great way to help test new features and find bugs before they roll out to everyone. But the biggest issue here is that this is, it's not really an issue, it's just something that's worth noting, is that it's very early access because Elementary OS 8 is based on Ubuntu 24.04. But that's not out yet. So this is an early access to something that Ubuntu hasn't even released an early access to. <laughs> so uh, that's worth ke keeping in mind. You will have bugs. Just, you know, be prepared for that. Now, it also is worth noting that in order to have access to the early access version of Elementary OS 8, you will need to become a sponsor, which you can do as little as a dollar per month. You can also do a one-time thing. You don't actually have to have a monthly subscription in order to do it, uh, but you can find links in the description and the blog post for that information. There's a lot of changes with Elementary OS 8 coming. There's not gonna be able to talk about all of them right now. Just something I thought was interesting is the change that they're doing for their update system. The update mechanism is being separated into two parts. So they're doing it so that the Flatpak apps are gonna be separate updating from the system packages. And this makes sense because of a variety of reasons, such as uh, being able to uh, easily dis discern between a user update and a system update, which is clearer understanding for users. It also simplifies the underlying code, speeds up update processes because you're doing less depending on what you're trying to update, prevents errors in one system from affecting updates in another system, and many more things. So it's going to be like a more faster, more reliable way to update the system and also easier to automate, which is pretty cool. Now, they've also made some changes to the multitasking view. Basically, they made it look better. So it, instead of having like a gray background behind the uh, cards, you now have a blurred version of the wallpaper adjusted for the light and dark modes, which looks really nice. So if you are interested in checking it out, keep in mind, this is early access. So you'll find links in the show notes for that. But also, if you'd like to learn more about Elementary OS as a, as a whole, then check out episode 310 of Destination Linux, where Danielle Foray joins us for an in-depth interview. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Let's talk about endpoint security. When you go through the airport, for example, there's a security line to check your ID and then another line to scan your bags. And the same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. And these days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of that equation where they check the user identity. But user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all in some cases. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that has a firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months. Or worse, that laptop could belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide solves this problem, this device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on your devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD or bring-your-own-device phone and laptop in your company. So visit thisweekinlinux.com slash collide to watch a demo and see how it works. That's thisweekinlinux.com slash K-O-L-I-D-E. There's a new version with KOS with version 2024.01. For those unfamiliar with KOS, KOS is a rolling release Linux distro with a heavy focus on the KDE ecosystem with KDE Plasma and KDE applications. Now, KOS is also spelled K-A-O-S, 
which makes me want to call it Chaos Linux, but that's not the name. It's K-O-S. I say that every time I cover it on the show because that's how much I want to call it Chaos Linux, and I have to remind myself it is not that. So let's talk about the latest release of KOS Linux with 2024.01. It is now powered by the Linux 6.6 LTS kernel, and it's also the first to use Plasma 6 as like the production thing. And you might be wondering, wait, isn't Plasma 6 not out yet? That is correct. So this is using the second release candidate for this release. So if you might want to keep that in mind when you try it out, but when it's a release candidate, it's probably pretty close because we're only like a couple of weeks away from the actual release. So uh, who knows? Very similar to Arch, how it works, but it's not based on Arch. It just has some similarities. I uh, just wanted to clarify that. So when you look at it, it, is, it doesn't use the Arch repos or anything like that. Uh, but it's running the second release candidate, like I said, and it also has Framework 6 and KDE Gear 24.02 included in this release. So they've been working on this for about 15 months to get it prepared for the Plasma 6 base. Uh, and so they've also have some stuff with a- applications being ported. Uh, so some of the applications that you might expect may not be there because they haven't been ported yet, but they are including some Plasma 5 and Framework 5 stuff so that you could use a lot of the applications that even if they haven't been ported. So just keep in mind, if they're not there, that's probably why. It also enables users to experience KDE Plasma ahead of the official release, which is expected to be February 28th. So users can update their installation up until then to get the latest and greatest version of Plasma 6. But uh, if you want to wait, you also can do that. But this is really cool because this is basically the first production distro to have it. So if you are interested in trying out Plasma 6 and you would like to have something that is not technically called unstable, then you can check out KOS Linux. If you'd like to learn more about this project, you can find links in the show notes. Mozilla has announced a new service to help fund the projects. And this is a really interesting service. There's a service they already kind of had called Mozilla Monitor, which essentially notified you about your email breaches and stuff like that. This is called Monitor Plus, which adds a new paid version, which is a subscription-based system that offers a lot of cool stuff related to privacy. It offers automatic data removal and con- continues to monitor your uh, for exposed personal information for you. It also is basically like a response to the growing concerns about personal data privacy, which is good because I'm really happy that that is becoming a thing that people are even considering because for a long time, people are like, I have nothing to hide. Of course you do. It's just you don't want everything about you out in the public, right? It's good that they're doing this because they're making it possible for people to get this data off really easily, and I like that. So the steps to use this new service is basically you can do a free one-time scan to find where your personal information is exposed, which requires you putting your first and last name, your current city and state, the date of birth, and your email address. And it provides insights to your exposed information, including names, addresses, phone numbers, family member names, and that sort of stuff. And then the next step is that you would subscribe to their $8.99 per month, if paid annually, service that will automatically and continuously request removal of personal information from data broker sites. Now, there's monthly scans to ensure information remains off these data sites, and you will also get notifications when it reaches a certain threshold of over 190 plus data broker sites having the data removed. And so it's it's an interesting uh, thing, but it's not really fully available to everyone. Unfortunately, it's only available for those in the United States. 
So if you are in the United States, you could check it out. If you're not, you will have to wait until some point when it is available. There is no word as to when that will happen. But this is a really interesting idea. And I think it'd be really cool for this service to become popular because I think that this is a critical thing to do. And I'm glad Mozilla is doing it because some companies doing this kind of thing would feel a little sketchy. And I think I'm more comfortable with Mozilla doing it. If you like, let me know what you think about that and what you think about this service in the comments below. And if you'd like to learn more about this news, you can find links in the show notes. The FCC has announced that they plan to vote on regulating AI-generated voices in robocalls. There's a proposal to declare AI-generated voices illegal under existing laws. Now, what law you're talking Well, we're talking about the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, or the TCPA. It was established in 1991 to control the nuance related to telephone calls. It's aimed to address evolving technology and adapt to changing circumstances. Now, this was allowed like rulemaking authority to the FTC and the FCC, leading to creation of things like the Do Not Call rule in 2003, which was pretty nice to have, right? And it also permits evolution of rules to meet changing technology, which is how they're going to be using this to uh, address this kind of issue related to the AI-generated voices. Now, there's potential to confuse customers by imitating celebrities, potential figures, and family members, and this is the core basis for why they wanted to do it. And also, there were recent incidents that included an anti-voting robocall using an AI-generated version of President Joe Biden's voice telling people not to vote. So there's clear precedent of needing to address these sorts of things, and it's only going to get worse with the advancement in AI. Now, I'm not saying the AI should not be advanced. I think the AI technology should be because that would be pretty cool. But there needs to be things that address these kinds of situations. So this ruling would change the classification for AI-generated voices as artificial under the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, aimed at making voice cloning technology used in common robocall scams illegal. So the TCPA bans artificial or pre-recorded voices in most non-emergency calls without prior consent. A proposed ruling would extend these standards to AI-generated voice calls, which is kind of funny because literally the A in this AI-generated means artificial, but they have to declare it as artificial to address it. So FCC's response to AI in robocalls is pretty interesting because the November 2023 inquiry launched into AI's impact on robocalls and robotext. Proposed ruling aims to give state attorney generals new tools to crack down on scams and protect consumers. Now, there's a lot of various different ways this could be a problem, but the thing that annoys me the most is why we're even in this situation. You may have felt that those robocalls and all these annoying nonsense calls have been increasing in the past couple of years to an unprecedented amount. And that's because they have, thanks to the Supreme Court making a supremely dumb decision on, related to that particular act. So the Supreme Court effectively gutted this provision in a decision that Forbes described as reading like a brief from a telemarketer's trade association. And this effectively means that robocalls who, that were illegal, like in that type, has become illegal now. And that's why they've became, like, become so just intrusive and happening all the time for some people. And to add insult to injury, they decided this on April 1st of 2021. So they did it on April Fool's Day, which you would hope was a joke, but it wasn't. 
And possibly they did it so it would get buried in the news as to why this is all happening. Well, it may have worked. I'm not sure how many people knew this, but uh, yeah. Thanks, Supreme Court, for making all this possible. Also, though, thanks to the FCC for actually trying to address some of it, at least, because, yeah, these things are getting out of hand. If you'd like to learn more about this news, you'll find links in the show notes. Social media is a very useful and powerful thing. For example, if you wanted to help this show get bigger, then you could share this episode on your favorite social media platform. No pressure, though. Just that's an option. Now, let's talk about a platform that you might be new to. This is called Blue Sky. Blue Sky is an open source alternative to Twitter, and it was in beta for two years. And it has recently, as of just a couple days ago, become open to everyone, no longer requiring invites. Now, I was able to get invites a few months ago and able to try it, and there is a lot of cool things about it, such as it's a decentralized social network. It also looks a lot like Twitter, by the way, like a lot like Twitter. <laughs> it's an alternative that looks almost identical and uh, allows users to sign up, post, follow others, repost, and basically the things that you would expect from Twitter before the nonsense began. So this already has like 3,000 users at the moment, despite being in invite only. And there's plans for federation support to be added in the future, which is pretty cool. But they also have like this marketplace for custom feeds where developers can share custom feeds in an open marketplace. Like users can add access and even set custom feeds as their default experience, which is kind of like a focus on user choice, which is really interesting to do. And they also said that they're going to be doing that on moderation as well soon, but they haven't described exactly what they mean by that, which does sound pretty interesting. Now, I think this is pretty cool, but there are some differences here with other uh, federated decentralized networks, and that is they are using their own protocol the open source AT protocol, which is cool that it's open source and it could lead to standalone GUI clients or command line tools and integration with Linux desktops and that sort of stuff. But unfortunately, it is not compatible with Mastodon, which is kind of a bummer because if it was, it would be easier to adopt it much faster. But, uh, you know, let me know what you think about Blue Sky. And if you give it a shot, um, maybe follow me on Blue Sky if you want to. I'll have that in the show notes too. And uh, if you'd like to learn more about this particular social network, or if you'd just like to share this episode on your current social network, you can find links in the show notes. There's a new version of the Skate video game coming to PC and also on Steam, which is awesome because players can avoid using EA's nonsense. And it also means that there's possibility for it to be supported on the Steam Deck, which I am super excited they first announced this in a video in December, and they also reiterated that to confirm it on Twitter recently, which is awesome. And they have uh, cross-platform plans and cross-progression play. But the biggest thing about this is not only is it a skate game from the franchise that I really liked when I was a teenager, but also because it's free to play. So there's no reason not to try it, which is pretty cool. Now, there are games right now, if you don't want to wait, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 and 2 are available for Linux and the Steam Deck, so you can check those out. But I, I actually already have those. But <laughs> I'm definitely going to try out this, especially considering it's a free-to-play game. Why wouldn't I? Uh, and also, I saw this post on GamingOnLinux.com, which uh, then sent me down a YouTube rabbit hole of skate videos. So thanks, Liam, for that. I mean, thanks for the letting me know about the game coming, but also... <laughs> I'm now getting a lot of skate recommendations 
that I haven't even thought about in a very long time. So it's been a while since I actually skateboarded. I don't think I'm going to change that, but now I'm going to be a while before I don't have these videos suggested to me. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about this, you'll find links in the show notes. There is a new Wayland compositor to talk about with its, its having its first stable release. Although it's a 0.1 release, which doesn't necessarily confirm stability to most people, but they might be using the term stable as in unchanging, which is basically what it means in programming anyway. But, you know, who's to know, right? So this was inspired by the Paper WM GNOME shell extension, and it has a lot of cool features. For example, it has positions of all windows into a single infinite horizontal strip. You can also make different changes how the tiling works if you want, but that's a really interesting idea. It also supports multiple monitors, mixed GPU systems, high DPI displays, features dynamic workspaces, screencasting support via uh, GNOME's XDG desktop portal, includes live reloading configuration system, configurable layout, and much, much more. And it's currently available in source form from various things, but there are some packages available from com uh, community repositories and it's available on a various different distributions, but mostly in the not-so-beginner-friendly stuff like, for example, Arch Linux, NixOS, uh, Fedora Copper. Now, Fedora is still Linux-friendly, beginner-friendly, but the Copper part means it's like kind of like Fedora's AUR. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about this particular Wayland compositor, you'll find links in the show notes. And we have another Wayland compositor to talk about, and at this point, we have a ton of them being developed, but I have a colorful one to tell you about that is in a field all to its own. And that compositor is Greenfield. Get it? Field all its own, colorful. So the, the overview of Greenfield Wayland Compositor is this, that it's a unique in-browser HTML5-based solution. So it is a Wayland Compositor for the browser, which is really cool. It's very fast and it's able to handle some Linux gaming but there are some downsides. For example, it doesn't have sound, so you really wouldn't want to necessarily do remote gaming that way, but they are working on it, so that'd be very cool to see. There's a, a lot of cool uh, value in it because it's basically a Wayland compositor for the web, which opens up a lot of possibilities, like running Linux applications remotely or via WebAssembly or WASM within the web browser. Very interesting. And they recently uh, did a presentation at FOSDEM 2024. If you'd like to find out more about that, I'll have that linked in the show notes. Uh, but there are like limitations, like I mentioned, where they, they doesn't have the audio yet. And they are planning to work on that, but they're also planning on implementing more Wayland protocols, file system support, and exploring WebAssembly ports of Mesa to WebGL and the Linux kernel. If you'd like to learn more about this particular compositor, you'll find links in the show notes. There is a new version of the open source live ISO for disk cloning and imaging project known as Clonezilla Live with version 3.1.2. Updates to this is that the kernel has been upgraded from Linux 6.5 to the long-term supported or LTS version of Linux 6.6. The operating systems based on Debian SID has been upgraded for the repository as of January 16, 2024. There's new mechanisms for loading Unifont to address font loading issues. And they also made a lot of enhancements, such as uh, shows Clonezilla Live version in Grub Netboot, adds massive deployment mode to Netboot client's boot menu, as well as Netboot files modified are only when the operation stops. That's, that, that was a lot to say. <laughs> There's also new tools and updates. There's a new version of Ezio, E-Z-I-O tool, and this is for server disk image cloning and deployment. 
Uh, they have a lot of updates related to uh, various different packages, including MemTest 86 Plus, which is a memory testing tool and then has been updated to version 7.0. If you'd like to learn more about this particular project, you'll find links in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show and want to be kept up to date with what's going on in the Linux and open source world, then be sure to subscribe. And of course, remember to like that smash button. If you'd like to support the show and the Tux Digital Network, then be consider becoming a patron by going to tuxdigital.com slash membership, where you get a bunch of cool perks like access to our patron-only section of our Discord server and much, much more. You can also support the show by ordering the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt or the This Week in Linux shirt that I'm wearing right now at tuxdigital.com slash store. Plus, while you're there, check out all the other cool stuff we have like hats, mugs, hoodies, stickers, and so much more at tuxdigital.com slash store. I'll see you next time for another episode of Your Source for Linux News. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tennell. I hope you're doing swell. Be sure to ring that notification bell. And until next time, I bid you farewell.